The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, part of the Pitcher List Podcast Network and a remedial course in baseball stats. I'm your host and expert layman, Matt Goodwin, and I'm joined by my co-host, fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. How you doing, Alex? Yeah, can't complain too much. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad, not too bad, and I'm really excited, and I'm going to tell you why. Because today, we are going to discuss sluggers. We'll tackle our central question, how can I get an edge when evaluating power hitters? We'll grade some recent moves in baseball uh, as pass-fail, including the Francisco Lindor trade. And we'll wrap up by exploring whether three true outcome hitters are good for baseball. But first, in this new year, Alex, what are you most looking forward to in 2021? So I could cheat and say that I'm really looking forward to making you do some math on air, but that's not entirely (laughs) true. (laughs) Um... I don't know. I, I'm really excited to um, to eat better this year. Um, I feel like I uh, kind of had like a pretty good 2020, and I'm going to keep that rolling for food. We'll ignore all of the other things, but there's a new Georgian place on my block that I'm really excited to visit some more times than I have. Well, I'm excited to hear about that because I have no idea what that means. <laughs> you got to get some kachapuri in your life. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I'm down. I'm down. I'm totally excited for uh, to learn all about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 2021 is is got to be like this hopeful year for a lot of people, right? I know I'm looking forward to being able to do things like uh, go outside and uh, go back to restaurants, you know, uh, concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to visit places and travel. Um, missed out on a couple of really awesome trips uh, in 2020, uh, which is fine. Which is fine. But yeah, uh, looking yeah. forward to the opportunity to get back on that in 2021. Yeah, we, we can hope. We can hope. <laughs> I think that's the tagline of 2021. Yeah. Right? Hope. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get started here with our number of the week. Our number of the week is 41%. And that is the home run to fly ball ratio of 2020's leader in that category. And I'm going to put you on the spot here, Alex. And I want you to tell me who you think this player might be. And if you get a little stuck, I have some more stats to help you out. Okay. I have like one question I absolutely have to ask here. Is this like 
among qualifiers or is yes fair question among okay. qualifiers <laughs> okay that makes me feel a whole lot better um okay so here's what's rolling through my head um i'm looking for someone who probably earned that home run to fly ball ratio just a little bit and that's because that number i know if it's coming from a qualifier that means someone probably actually hit a lot of home runs um and you don't do that on accident um we'll talk about home run to fly ball ratio later but i'm trying to think um is it um interesting also probably low a number of actual fly balls that would probably be a pretty big thing um who had not many fly balls but a lot of home runs last year uh, jose abreu that's gonna be my first guess that is actually a very intriguing guess but keeping with our baseball jargon that would be a swing and a miss okay not jose abreu not jose um abreu. i feel like my next guess is gonna be a shortstop for the uh los angeles dodgers Corey seager ah you know another excellent guess but now you're at owen two I think you're going to have a hard time getting on base here with this uh, with this at bat. Uh, let me give you another another stat. What's another stat? Do you, let, I'm going to let you pick which stat you want to try and make your next guess. I can give you hard hit percentage. I can give you barrel percentage. I can give you max exit velocity. Uh, give me um, give me the hard hit rate. Hard hit is forty six and a half percent. Okay, forty six and a half. So I know that eliminates a few people because I play with too many leaderboards. I know that's not Tatis. That is higher than Seager, or that's lower than Seager's was actually. Um, goodness, this is rough. Um, okay, I'm I'm pretty sure certain I'm going to strike out here. Um, all right, let's try to rack my. It's not Mike Trout. <laughs> it is not Mike Trout. Uh, it would it would be kind of interesting for me to lead with uh, a Mike Trout stat. It is not Mike Trout. I'm going to give you one more clue, and I think this is going to bring it home. Okay. This is a player that has yet to be scooped up by any major league team yet this offseason. Okay, so this is someone that we're expecting. Oh, oh, um, this is Marcelo Zuna. It is not Marcelo Zuna. <sighs> okay, tell it me is who this not. is. Wait, is, is it Nelson Cruz? It is Nelson Cruz. It is. It only took you five. That's actually pretty good. If we were playing Name That Tune, I think you'd be doing okay. It is Nelson Cruz. How do you feel about that? Um, I, I mean, Nelson Cruz should be the answer to more questions. People should love him more. <laughs> I'm curious, though. What made you want to bring up home run to fly ball rate? Well, you know, I, I, I um, was doing leaderboards, and I, I was trying to find something that uh, was connected to our, our central question of the day today, um, and um, I thought that it was maybe something that wouldn't be always on your radar. It might be a little bit more of a challenge for you, which is something I'm very interested in because I think that's really going to be hard for me is to, to find a stat that challenges you. Uh, All right. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about that stat? Great. Um, so as we said at the top, today our big central question is asking, how do I get an edge when I'm evaluating power headers? Um, I really like that you brought this one up right from the jump because I don't think that this is a very good stat to get an edge for yourself. I know that when I was first kind of dipping my toes into like the baseball waters, 
Um, I heard a lot of discussion. I'm going to bring up someone who I don't really want to talk about a whole lot today, but he's just a guy that I remember this stat getting associated with. That's Max Muncy. Um, he had what I was told was an unsustainably high home run to fly ball ratio and that it was going to come down to earth. And then he did it again. and was really good in 2019. Um, I'm kind of lucky compared to a lot of people because I don't have a whole lot of experience with some of like the old guard of the stats because I'm just kind of young and wasn't paying a lot of attention there for a long time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's with any stat that is a ratio and calls itself a ratio, it's really important to think about how things can go wrong and how things can go right when you're discussing numbers. Now I'm going to try to let our audience, um, not be frustrated and flustered by the amount of math that they're going to have to do in their head (laughs) while we're on air here. And I'm going to kind of come back to this stat, but I want to open with, um, like just one thought for you is like, how can this stat mislead me? And I think the best way to not be misled by stats is to try to get a grip on what they're actually representing in real life. And my favorite way to do that is by thinking about real life baseball first. So I'm going to pitch a thought experiment back to you. Uh, I'm going to make you imagine that you are one of my favorite players in baseball to talk about, Miguel Sano. Okay. And I'm going to be Alex Cobb in this situation. And I'm going to be pitching to you. And I mean... I'm not going to let our uh, listeners imagine too much about how that's going to go, but I'm going to pitch this to you in particular. How does this at bat go right for you? I'm Miguel Sano, and how do I how do I find success in this at bat? Yes. Now, from his point of view, um, I'm sure there's a lot more to this. There's probably hours and hours of video. There's probably a lot of coaching. There's probably a lot of discussion that happens, and uh, a lot of spreadsheets. But I think at the end of the day, my game plan, if I'm Miguel Sano going up against anybody, is swing as hard as I possibly can. And if I hit it, it's going to go 17 miles. And if I don't, I'm going to strike out. And uh, and that's kind of what I'm expecting out of an at-bat. Yeah, the the one extra layer of nuance I would maybe add there is maybe you hope that you can maybe read the spin on the pitch and decide not to swing at it um and draw a walk here or there uh but even that's probably too much nuance for what we're talking about right now yeah we're talking about sluggers today we're talking about guys who are not known for easing up and just trying to get on base now miguel sano is a great guy to talk about this in terms of because um there definitely is one swing mode um i think that for him you can also imagine there's like maybe some ways where he makes contact and things doesn't don't like work out perfectly you know you the kind of clip the ball a little bit over a little bit under you maybe lose some of that power transfer whenever you're like grounding out weekly to um i mean he's a right-handed hitter so probably third base or maybe popping it up but miguel sano is the poster child for a stat that a lot of us love to look at and that's barrels um for those of you guys who aren't familiar with what barrels actually mean it's kind of like a backwards engineered stat i think that's really cool um they, when I say they, I mean baseball savant, um, created this stat as a measure of launch angle and exit velocity combinations that are pretty much mostly going to end up being home runs. Mm-hmm. Um, League wide, the numbers vary year to year depending on how juiced the ball is, but <laughs> yeah. we're talking in like the 70 to 80% of barrels mm-hmm. are going to be home runs. And if you're pulling the ball, like a lot of these power hitters do, right. that number is going to be even higher. Um, there are a couple different ways to talk about them though. And I'm going to like pitch this back to you. When you think about barrel rate, when you've encountered it, what does it look like? And like, what do you kind of expect from it? And what do you think from it? Uh, well, you know, I am not as, uh, 
deep into the the stats as as you are, <laughs> which I think is good because <laughs> I think I, I think that what I'm coming at this from is I I envision what this stat it looks like in my head because it's a that's great just name for it. Kind yeah. of, it's 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 the the experience I have with it. It yeah. doesn't. I don't run the formulas. I don't really think about the components of the stat. Um, and so I'm picturing that in my head. And when I hear somebody barrel the ball, I'm thinking about that moment where I'm at the game and, and you hear that crack of the bat and it's just the prototypical, uh, you know, it's just uh, wood hitting ball, right? And it's it's just driven. Yeah. It just hit super hard. Maybe it goes over the fence. Maybe it doesn't, but yeah. it is absolutely smoked. Yeah. Now, I should also ask you then, on a more technical sort of like area, like, where do you encounter it? Like, what's your entry point from the statistical level from it? Like, are you mostly seeing it on someone's savant page? Like their Miguel Sano's savant page in particular? Yeah, absolutely. When you go to a savant page, you see the visualizations that they have, maybe uh, fan graphs as you're trying to look at at a collection of stats or a family of stats that might help shed some light on something. Yeah. Fan graphs recently imported a lot of savant stuff. I bring this up for a really important reason. Uh, if you go to Miguel Sano's Savant page, on the right side of his very, very red page, you're going to see his barrel rate. And they call it barrel rate. I want to make sure I'm getting this exactly correct, but yeah, it's look, it's on the it's on the right side. Yeah, it's on the left side. Barrel percentage. Um, this is confusing and kind of annoying to me uh, because it's actually not a really good way to talk about it. Now, Miguel Sano's 22.9% barrel rate in 2020 means that when he hit the ball, Mm-hmm. 22.9% of the time, it was absolutely crushed. And mm-hmm. you can b- kind of do some math from there. Take that 70% of that. Yeah, Miguel Sano is hitting home runs on like 15, almost 15% of the time he makes contact. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> we could look that up later. I, I kind of want to. Um, but that number is actually really misleading because Miguel Sano is really good at another thing. And that's striking out. And that's another part of this conversation. Right. So I think it's really important to bring up barrels um, as kind of the entry point is one of the best ways to talk about hitters because they really open up uh, another can of worms and that our discourse around power hitters doesn't necessarily end up being fair very often. Now, if you go to Savant's leaderboards, um, click leaderboards, uh, click exit velocity and barrels, their default sort is what they call barrels per PA percentage. That's not the same number that you're going to see on um the landing page for a particular player. It's also the fairer and better number, and it really annoys <laughs> me that it's not on their page. So this is the percent of plate appearances that end with a um, a barrel. Now, if we're looking at 2019 numbers, um, which I mm-hmm. think are a little bit fairer, um, yeah, the number yeah. one guy in um, barrels per batted ball event, um, well, you had to sort it so it's not qualified. I believe I'm going to put it down to 150 um, events, but uh, Miguel Sano's first. Um, yeah, okay. First in barrels per plate per, uh, plate appearance, though, is Nelson Cruz. Um, there you go. Yeah, uh, Miguel Sano is actually fourth, um, but because he's striking out like thirty plus percent of the time, thirty five to forty range, plus drawing a lot of walks, like about half of Miguel Sano's plate appearances in some seasons might not result in contact at all. So you got to have that fair comparison. Barrels per PA percentage is the number I want to drive people towards. And that's the easy, let's start here number that I think people need to look at. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the most important piece of this is there's so much information and data, right? You go yeah. to these pages and um, it's it's actually overwhelming if you're you're not used to reading through it and trying to make sense of it. Um, you know, if I'm going to the page and I'm trying to find the the the, the sluggers, right? Yeah. I'm gonna kind of put you a little bit on the spot here to to sure. make a little bit of a comparison. Um, if I don't really do this a lot. I might go to those leaderboards and sort by slugging, right? Or I might sort oh, yeah. by okay. ISO. If I know barrel percentage and I sort by barrel percentage, I guess what I'm getting at is is why is the barrel percentage per plate appearance a superior statistic to simply sorting by slugging uh, so that and I can just order that way and then I can I can tier my players that way as I'm prepping for a draft. Okay, so this brings us to like a really foundational um, difference in what stats are supposed to do. Um, a lot of the stats that I tend to be annoyed with are what I would call like output stats. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the number of home runs you hit is an output of how hard you crank the ball, basically. Right. I want to know the input stats for a player a little bit more. And so the more that we can move towards those, the more we can create fair comparisons. If you're playing in you know like an extremely hitter friendly ballpark let's say you're a right-handed hitter in minute made and um in houston the crawford boxes are an easy target mm-hmm. there are some home runs where the ball is not even 95 miles an hour off the bat that land in those boxes um but if you're a right-handed hitter who's somewhere that isn't so friendly say like city field like the number of home runs you're hitting aren't going to be a fair comparison if you're in coors you're going to be able to rack up a ton of doubles and triples that would otherwise be out elsewhere. So to compare batters fairly, we have to create comparisons that are fair. And when you do that, you can make better predictions going forward. Um, so what I'm hearing out of this is that uh, if you look at the output stat, if you're looking at total number of home runs, uh, if you're looking at even something like total bases or something that includes uh, an output stat as it's uh, in the stat itself, you're, you're, bringing in variables that may yes, exactly. not specifically address a player's skill set, whereas those input stats help us to see who's actually good at a discrete baseball skill. Am I, am yeah. I hearing that right? Yeah, it's like think about ways that a stat could lie to you, right? Like, it, I remember there was a game um, in, like, I think it was, um, I think it was pretty early on in the season. It was Houston at Colorado and Kyle Tucker had like two triples and a home run. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get two triples playing in every ballpark, right? Right. It's a clear outlier game. And I loved it. It was so <laughs> fun to watch him. Like just kind of like figure it all out on the fly. Yeah. It looked like, um, but circumstance is a big portion there. I mean, defenders just falling down in certain plays. Like I know that, um, there was a, home run that christian yelich hit that i feel think involved uh, eloy jimenez like falling into the netting last year you know it's stuff like that you want to kind of like divorce yourself from that and move away from like the how many times did my coin flip heads more towards like the what are the actual odds of the coin flipping heads and that's right 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 so not so much what whether or not yelich got a home run on that but how hard he hit it how was he able to square it up um exactly have have you and again i'm putting you on the spot here um, have you incorporated into this sort of thing like the sweet spot percentage? 
I know that that's kind of something that, that people are focusing on these days. So you bring up this great um, number that's just like, it's there. How does that work? Um, so barrels, um, let's bring up a guy that I feel like doesn't hit, <laughs> feel like a guy that doesn't hit a whole lot of barrels, um, who still absolutely uh, mashes the crap out of the ball. And that's Yandy Diaz. I talk about Yandy Diaz syndrome jokingly a whole lot. And I, I <laughs> joke that, that that's like when you hit three times more ground balls than you do fly balls. Um, mm. Yandy Diaz um, had exit velocity that was just nuts, hard hit rate that was just nuts while he was in Cleveland. He moved to Tampa and his barrel rate went up. How did it go up? Well, Tampa figured out how to use those like tree trunk arms of his mm-hmm. in order to elevate the ball a little bit more. Barrel rate incorporates both angle. Like there is like a set angle that it has to be. Ideally, like the area that is a barrel kind of like is based on like the 26 to 30 degree range. And then like as you get higher or lower than that angle, you have to hit the ball harder. But all barreled balls are hit at least 98 miles an hour. Um, some balls that are hit 98 98 miles an hour aren't barrels because they're just kind of like missing cutoffs in some arbitrary ways. But sweet mm-hmm. spot percent basically just takes that same sort of range, roughly, not exactly, but pretty close, and just completely takes out the uh, velocity component. So okay. um, a lot of the sweet spot rate kind of just overlaps with like line drives. You can think of barrels then as like super optimized, both I put all my power into it and I'm good at putting my power into the ball properly. So if you look at a guy like Andy Diaz, he's a really good example of I can't just look at someone's power and expect that on average when things fluctuate around, eventually everything will kind of just work itself out because mm-hmm. some guys just don't have swings that are built properly um, and they kill a lot of earthworms and get themselves <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> um, he did figure some stuff out. He looked like he was a whole lot better in Tampa um, he went from like single, low single digit home runs to 14 in 2019. He was hurt last year. I'm like kind of tossing out his stuff, but if mm-hmm. I'm just looking really quickly, do I buy that Yandy Diaz has potential to be like a pretty reasonably good third baseman who might be a bargain based off of some ADPs? That's a really quick way to apply is like, I think this guy's made some changes. His barrel rate looks a whole lot better. He makes a lot of contact. I can buy it. And okay. that's kind of like the way that you can just start to piece this together in a fair and understandable way. Yeah, and that was kind of going to be the next thing that I that I asked because uh, so now I understand barrel percentage. Now I understand that barrel percentage per plate appearance might give me a, a slightly better view of of this uh, hitter that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? How do <laughs> I how do I know that that's telling me a story? that uh like this guy is flying under the radar or uh this guy is just going to continue to pound the ball but it's going to be straight into the ground the thing that you might want to look for in a lot of these cases is like is there something i'm missing where i might be lied to by this number right um when we ask this question, it's like, how do I be right about sluggers at the top of the show? Basically. Yeah, right. Like, how do I not be wrong? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, like a maybe that should have been the question, huh? <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, so it, it, I think there are a couple different things you can kind of look for. Um, I want to make sure someone doesn't have like a really extreme outlier, like line drive rate. We'll talk about that more in like later episodes, I think pretty frequently. But like, mm-hmm. you know, if your line drive rate's above like 30% by a significant amount, you may have a higher than can later be expected amount of your power going towards um, barrels. And maybe that means you're just really good, but um, I kind of doubt it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
that that's like something I would look for. It but really is just like is something extreme happening. Um, but if not, if a guy's barreling a lot of stuff and you have like a reasonable um, amount of a sample for barrels, they actually for batters stabilize. I think at about hundred balls in play, and you're starting to get a pretty good picture. Um, we got that last season, by the way. So someone had a really good barrel per PA rate last year. That could definitely tell you something. And even if someone just has a good barrel per event rate, you can definitely say that someone has power in their bat if they played Mm -hmm. most of the year last year. I think those are some fair, I can feel good about it, ways of looking at things. Okay. Uh, And I'm going to ask you one more question here uh, and and take it where where you think it needs to go here. Um, Launch angle is something that gets a lot of airplay. People talk (laughs) about launch angle a lot. If I go... And I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear hear what you have to say. <laughs> if I go and, and sort players by launch angle, uh, what is a, a way that that can, as we were talking about before, what is a way that that can lie to me and make me think that we are looking at something that we're actually not? Okay, so you brought up a great stats question here. And it really, it's the question is like, how do I break an average? And how do I make an average lie to me? So I want to take a really extreme um example um that's not baseball focused actually and we're gonna kind of apply it to both launch angle and also exit velocity because i think both of them can lie to people by having broken samples so um let's say that we're gonna put um 100 podcasters in a room and we're gonna find the average amount of money that people make doing baseball podcasts okay (laughs) okay um and we're gonna find one person makes an exorbitant amount of money um let's pick you know some random person from like espn or like yahoo or cbs and say that they make like um what's an absorbent amount of of money for a baseball podcast six figures a year and then like the other 99 percent of people or the other 99 people are all going to make another combined like twenty five thousand dollars right um you know um the average person then um is making over a thousand dollars a year but the median person there is making nowhere near that the best way to deal with an average is to try to find, can I find the same stat expressed maybe in terms of like um, some other thing that kind of breaks it up into like percentiles and says like, how often am I doing this thing? For a launch angle, that's like, how often am I popping it up? How often am I hitting fly balls? How often am I hitting line drives? How often am I hitting ground balls? Really, I think the the way that I often end up looking at it is like, um, the fly ball to ground ball ratio brought up with the Andy Diaz. I think it's a really quick and dirty way to do that. Also someone's sweet spot rate um, does kind of stabilize year to year to a, a, a bit. So if someone's uh, got a really good average launch angle, but they're just really just like all pop-ups and weak grounders, like they may end up with a really optimized, nice looking average, but you want to go look for those other pieces of information to confirm that it's actually happening. Cause they've got a nice smooth distribution rather than just like, two peaks doing the wrong thing (laughs) right exactly Um, and bringing you back to the central uh you know the different measures of central tendency there can tell you completely different stories so i want to flip this back to you because we talked a bit about averages and i want to try to see if i can get you to guess what's wrong with exit velocity then there are like a couple different answers here but i'm like yeah no i think that's a a really good one because again i think it's a very popular one and i think a lot of people who um, or, or maybe casually trying to go and, and get themselves into these stats, they're going to look at things like launch angle and exit velocity because they've heard them, right? And they hear yeah. the, the leaders of the industry use these, but I think it's because they know how to use them in a meaningful way. Well, exit velocity also feels real. Like it's a number, it's a number of miles per hour. People can latch onto that. More seems like it's better. 
I want you to guess the right. like, how can that one lie to us? I think that exit velocity, as like you were saying, if you're looking at outlier events it's, and you're only looking at average velocity, maybe you have somebody who smokes their home runs, just mm-hmm. absolutely crushes their home runs, uh, but they also hit a lot of weak ground balls when they, when they don't uh, get that sweet spot, when they don't barrel it up, so to speak. And so uh, you have these extreme... Um, uh, exit velocities on the max end, and you also have these trickle exit velocities on the low end, and it settles in an area that looks like, oh, that's pretty decent. But if the only time the ball is really getting hard is when it's leaving the yard, maybe that's that's something that you want to look at, especially depending upon your league settings and what you are getting credit for from that player. Yes. So you you actually nailed this one. <laughs> um, so uh, our good correct. Our good collective uh, pitcher list friend, Andrew Perpetua, brings this up on Twitter all the time. The thing that will surprise you is that the, the like, a couple soft grounders and a couple home runs version of events is the good version. Um, and this is actually what hard hit rate was made for. Um, basically, uh, hitting the ball 90 miles an hour doesn't make a meaningful difference compared to hitting it 60 miles an hour. Heck, there are some, like, pretty common, like, flare events where you just, like instead of popping out to center field, you just hit it straight over the second baseman's head and you're right. safe. Like, right. so like you do actually want to ignore averages often because they aren't all equally valuable. There's also another way that they can be broken. And this is like, if you're comparing two players who have really different, um, strikeout rates. So I, this is actually where I'm going to bring up, um, another comparison to Miguel Sano and that's, uh, Jose Ramirez mm-hmm. who, Notably, just did have what I would consider an MVP level season in mm. Cleveland. I love how Sabre does <laughs> and his game brings. He had a career high in strikeout rate, uh, just above 16% at a 16.9. And his exit velocity was in the 80s, 88.7. But his barrel rate on contact was 10.2%. Because he's not striking out a whole lot and he's making contact more than 70% of the time. Wow. That means that that 10% barrels on 70% contact means right. that he's hitting a barreled ball on like 7 to 8% of all of his actual plate appearances. That's really good. Um, so if you want to make a fair comparison, Jose Ramirez compared to someone like um, Miguel Sano is going to show up poorly in terms of um, exit velocity. He may even show up a little bit poorly in terms of hard hit rate. Um, mm-hmm. I've talked about this kind of like in some stuff I've written before. Hard hit rate is still on contact. It is a measure of how much power is in someone's bat, not in their outcomes. Barrel per PA and any other per PA comparison is the fairest way to assess it. And if you want to go elsewhere, um, I mean, just compare someone's like WOBA. It's designed to make fair comparisons. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I say MVP level, um, 408 for WOBA is pretty literally translates to MVP <laughs> level. Um, so, yeah, you can be a slugger without all the strikeouts. Um, and I think the secret is, um, you know, just be really, really, really good. <laughs> yeah, it's just that. that simple. You just decide, hey, I'm just going to be really, really, really good at baseball. And then everything just the path is set. It's clear, yes, smooth I- sailing. I believe the problem was that I never tried hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to uh, bring up one um, one additional player that uh, is was not on your list that uh, I don't know where whether this is going to throw you or it's not going to throw you. 
Uh, but somebody that I found to be very intriguing over the last couple of, of years, uh, seasons since he moved to the New York Yankees, seems to have really kind of put some of this together. And maybe somebody that uh, you could shed some light on using these metrics that you're talking about, where maybe some of those things that we were looking at before misled us, and maybe some of these things that we're talking about now can help us understand them. And I know I'm putting you immediately on the spot, so I'm talking a little bit here to give you a chance to get to Luke Voigt. Voigt. Yes, I love Luke Voigt. Um, I'm really glad you brought him up. So you know what Luke Voigt has done since he's since he's left St. Louis? Since 2018, since he's been in New York, I guess I'm technically including some Cardinals data in here, but it's one of the easy ways to do this in Savant Search. You just pull a couple years, mm-hmm. you pull uh, barrels, and then you set your parameters to be PAs, and you actually get a three-year um, barrel per PA um, percent leaderboard. Um, Luke Voigt is out of players with at least... 750 PAs. I'm going to set it at slightly over a season. He is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 14th. He comes in just behind Ronald Acuna Jr., uh, ahead of Fran Will Reyes, Chris Davis, Jose Abreu, Josh Donaldson, Mookie Betts. The list goes on mm-hmm. and on. He's also, um, I believe, within that same leaderboard. I'm not going to pull it because I just don't want to pull a couple consecutive leaderboards to be annoying to you. <laughs> He's had two seasons with an OPS above 900. The dude is really, really good. Um, there are a couple different ways to kind of look at him though. And I do want to make sure I'm pulling those out. So the people who are trying to come up with like, not just a convincing way to prove it to your buddies, but here's how I would actually look at it. Way of looking at him. So his strikeout rates um, have actually declined, but they're all roughly in the mid twenties. That's pretty okay for someone who's hitting the ball really hard. His hard hit rate is above 40%, which is pretty good for anyone about what I would want to see for someone who strikes out as much as him. His barrel rate is exceptionally high. Um, lowest in these last three seasons have all been in the 30s he was at 20 percent in 2018 again barrel per pa numbers about 20 that's like top of the league sort of stuff Mm -hmm. so what this guy's profiling as by looking at those numbers and if you guys are kind of curious about how you would kind of try to find these yourself find these leaderboards on baseball savant just sort and figure out what are the people at the top look like what are people in the middle look like what do the guys at the very bottom look like? Mm-hmm. You kind of get a pretty good feel for this. But Luke Voigt is exceptionally good at turning his power into barrels. He's also, and this is pretty important, he's right-handed. Um, right-handed hitters tend to have an advantage against left-handed pitchers and be at a slight disadvantage against right-handed pitchers. So he's doing all of this despite being at the like weak side of the platoon also. <laughs> yeah, right. That's really, really good. So... You can't expect him to, like, fall into a platoon necessarily um, because he would be on the small side of it. Mm-hmm. If he's playing this well, he has the job full-time probably. It's kind of like the way that you would expect a normal, rational, reasonable manager. I don't know if I'm describing the reality of the situation. <laughs> but, yeah, it looks like he's got a lot of power and he's translating an exceptional amount of it into barrels. And that's the sort of, like, thing that you would expect. It's continuing to happen, so you would expect it to happen some more he's also got like an average long angle in the mid-teens that's about where you'd want to see it the sweet spot rates are pretty high um his are like averaging around 40 over like three years 39 percent in his career so yeah this is a guy who is really good at generating contact which is or good contact which is a skill unto itself mm-hmm. um and that's just sort of like here's how i would put it all f- together for you using this nice tasty uh i'm sorry cardinals example <laughs> 
Um, let me ask you one more question, and then uh, we're going to move on to our next segment here. Um, how, if we look at what Luke Voigt was doing with the Cardinals before he was traded, it wasn't quite the same. Um, it wasn't quite the same. But what could we have looked at maybe while he was there that would have given us a clue that this was coming? So um, there, are, there are a couple things. Um, I, I really warn people about using like ex-WOBA as how good someone's going to be in the future. But there was a big WOBA, ex-WOBA gap, which kind of tells us that like he's already got some skills that are pretty good. Again, the hard hit rates we really want to see 44 ish percent, 25 ish percent strikeout rate, uh, barrel rate just below 10%, but still a pretty high sweet spot rate uh, in 2017. Uh, and trying to see if there's anything else here that really stands out. Um, it looks like he, uh, his five ball rate has always been a little bit low. Um, like he's in like the, he was 24% in 2017, 20%. Uh, last year, but he's always had pretty high line drive rates. It just really seemed like he got a little bit unlucky, but the power numbers and everything else was there. It was probably just a bit of opportunity and uh, being a better park. Um, Bush is a terrible park. (laughs) The Cardinals (laughs) really have an offense-suppressing park, so that might be it. Uh, And we'll talk about park factors later. I don't want to bore you with that too much today. Yeah. Well, it sounds, though, like he's kind of the poster child for why you look at input data rather than output there data. you go yeah there you go exactly and like you can't predict that this is necessarily going to happen but there definitely are some good signs that if you want to go back in time and like bet on a guy go back in time and bet on luke Voigt, and maybe also <laughs> um a bunch of stocks and uh some other stuff yeah right if we all had time machines uh that would be great all right, well, it's time to move on to our uh, our next segment here, which is our pass-fail segment. And the first thing that I'd like to bring up and talk about is uh, big news across the league, probably the hottest of the hot stoves so far, um, and that is the uh, Lindor trade between the Cleveland baseball team and the New York Mets. What do we think about this, Alex? So uh, if we're going to grade this on both angles. Um and I think I want to take the easy side first. Um, the Mets um, gave up. You hear me pausing here a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Now, they gave yeah. us some pieces that I think are pretty interesting in like a long run perspective. They gave up Ahmed Rosario, um, who is the big name, former hype prospects shortstop, yeah. who kind of hasn't always panned out. Um He's had some, a couple different issues. He seemed like he like hit the ball in the one same area of the feed, field over and over and over again. So he was getting these really weird up-the-middle shifts. And there's a lot of talent in his bat. He's a good defender. We'll mm-hmm. see if it works. I have no idea. But he's the sort of player that Cleveland has kind of figured out in the past that, honestly, the Mets haven't figured out in the past. It's possible that they turn it into something. They also got back um, some other prospects. Uh, so you might have gotten a lot of steals if you had put Andreas Jimenez into your lineup. Um, I've also heard some nice things about Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green, but I'm not equipped to say much about them personally. Mm-hmm. But if all they had gotten back was a Lindor, I think that's still new for the Mets. Um, they also got back Carlos Carrasco, who is... Who? Carlo, what? Carlos? Oh, Carlos Carrasco, that really good pitcher. Yeah. Yeah, I think arguably top 20 in the league. They get one year of Lindor. Um, they'll pay him about $19 million. He'll be worth, if he's worth like the five to six win player, he's usually been um, somewhere in the range of like 40 to $50 million for them Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like dollar to war transaction. 
that's a really big win for them. Carrasco is got three years on his deal, all at about 12 to $15 million. I think they're going to pay him about 38 in total. And if he's worth the three to four wins, at least that he is worth every year, they're going to make a bunch of money in terms of like the dollar to war savings on him. So Mm -hmm. they're taking on some salary that they can take on because their owner's rich and willing to spend money. And they (laughs) get back some prospects that are okay. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if that really makes your team a whole lot better, but but it's it's a lot of fun. I'm not even a Mets fan, but I appreciate it. I I really do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the big point there is like, they're a team that's willing to spend some money in order to win some baseball games. There are a lot of other teams whose owners are very exceptionally wealthy, including, including notably the Dolan family who own the Cleveland baseball team. They're like straight up pretending that they're strapped for cash. Really. It's Uh a choice that they don't want to like take their money out of hedge funds that have like doubled in value. Mm -hmm. Like they just don't care enough about winning in order to like pay. They're losing 30 million in payroll. Um, mm-hmm. And a whole lot worse is this team going to be next year. Now, you can argue that the, the entire central divisions are going to be bad, and you can still make the playoffs being worse. Um, so it's possible that Cleveland still ends up being like the seventh, eighth seed next year. I sort of doubt it because I hope the universe conspires to make that not happen. <laughs> but this is an easy, easy pass for the Mets. Uh, I think this is a big like collective fail on Manfred's part and the Dolan family's parts for a creating a playoff lane where a team like Cleveland can stop spending money and still try to win, like make the playoffs um, by expanding it. And as for Cleveland as a whole, like I think this is like, I would call this like, really 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 close to failing i think though like the given the rules that they're kind of existing in their front office i I don't know if they've done the best they can here um i mean you argue like someone else would have beat this move if they could have i think is the thing we have to keep in mind yeah i i so i i mean i think that um there's universal agreement that the mets pass here right that they they did a good job they did a good job in terms of both business of baseball as you are pointing out they're getting value for uh player quality um they're they're spending a bunch of money but they're they should be getting a return that's worth actually even more money but it's also good for baseball it's good for the new york mets it's good for the fans of the new york mets it's fun and it's exciting and so i would almost grade this in two different categories i would give it the baseball pass fail and the good for baseball pass fail. And I yeah, think yeah. that that the, the New York Mets, they, they pass in both. Um, I think the Indians fail in good for baseball and fun. And um, it feeds right into exactly what you're talking about, that it's being driven by the analysis that they can invest a certain amount of dollars and still have a, uh, a likelihood that they're willing to live with of making the playoffs uh, with uh, less investment. and uh, But that takes the enjoyment off the field. So I think from a business standpoint, you almost have to give the Indians a pass here as much as it really stinks to say that because it's, it's relatively um, logical to say, why am I going to spend 20, 30, 40 million dollars more than I have to to make the playoffs? From a baseball good for baseball or a fun standpoint or a Cleveland Indians, I'm um, Cleveland baseball team fan standpoint. I think it's a Ugh. huge fail. I feel like the, the really easy thing is like if baseball can create this option, that is bad. And 
if you can run the analysis that they might still be kind of okay uh, in spite of all of this, that is just terrible because uh, if I am a Cleveland fan, I would absolutely want to have owned a Francisco Lindor jersey or a Cookie Carrasco jersey um, probably 12 months ago. And right now I'd be really upset, not with the players who, I mean, Lindor did everything in his power to say, you can afford to pay, pay me and I will stay if you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I love him for that alone, that he basically just spoke the reality right. over and over out loud until he was traded because the team kind of had to just hope that it wasn't said anymore. Yeah. Um, I think it's one more example of how the, the, um, the way that baseball is set up is um, it incentivizes financially a lot of the wrong things. Uh, yeah, this is I, just I one example. And, and, and we can, we can get into more of that in, in uh, future episodes, but I, I do yeah, think I that, that in terms of trying to attract a fan base, trying to bring in kids, get them excited about the game, I think these types of things, well, in the boardroom they make sense, on the ball field they don't, uh, and I think it's very short-sighted uh, and unfortunate for those those Cleveland fans, for sure. Yeah, I brought this up, and this is the last piece of business I'll say here about this, is that they are owned by the Dolan family, and um, James Dolan, the name might be a name that you're recognized. That's the owner of the New York Knicks. I'm hmm. not saying that making bad financial, well, they're not bad financial decisions, making bad fan decisions yeah. is like in their blood or anything like that. <laughs> but it sure is uh, quite memorable that this seems like it's happening systemically between them. Um, having a lot of money does not make you good at things is a very important thing to remember, I guess. Yeah, or um, definitely it's a signal of the prioritization uh, within yeah. the, the organizations. Yeah, I mean, you don't, amass that much money without caring about amassing a whole lot of money. And that's clearly what a move like this is built around. That's a fair point too. Um, In terms of amassing a lot of money for actually playing baseball, there are definitely some other contracts we didn't talk about. How's that for a transition? There you go. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Liam Hendricks is definitely a move. That's like something we've been waiting on. And Mm -hmm. I really, really just want to give this a quick uh, pass on my end in two different ways as well. Um, Obviously he's making a ton of money. Um, Mm. There's a couple of particular things about this move that I think are extra good that make it, even for someone who hates paying closers, a really good move for both parties. Hendricks has been stupid good since signing with Codify. If you guys aren't familiar with Codify, go give them a follow on Twitter, Codify Baseball. Um, they're like, how do I use the data to put my pitches in the right places against these batters most effectively? It's kind of like their shtick. Mm-hmm. Um and we'll probably be able to bring up some of their charts and plots in the future, but um, they've been like what you would call kind of like a, a dumb player development team, for lack of a better word, over the past decade plus. Mm-hmm. They recently ousted their um, pitching coach. They hired a new pitching coach uh, from San Francisco who had been doing wonders there, and they're investing more and more in pitchers, including Lucas Giolito, another mm-hmm. Codify client, I believe, um, who have been like pitching smarter so it's a good show of priorities they also did a nice thing with his contract in the fourth year where they turned his last year into an option that they can stretch out Mm. so it's a contract that's really player friendly with some nice team friendly bits too like Mm. it does good things for both sides so i just really like it as like a hey we all kind of did the right thing here collectively yeah yeah that's a nice thing to see um i mean i would i would uh concur and, and that's a that's a pass for me as well um we touched a little bit on the, this idea of, of the difference between uh, the business of baseball and the fun of baseball. 
Uh, I want to kind of get to our last segment here and talk a little bit about um, maybe the uh, impact of these metrics on the fun of baseball as well and pose this question to you. Um, the three true outcome hitters that are emerging um, based on a lot of this deep dive statistical analysis and outcome driven uh, results and, and all of that, are they good for baseball? Is baseball more fun with more balls in play or is baseball more fun with the three true outcome hitters? So I think that there's like a couple different ways to assess what fun is. And I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but the kind of like lines that I can draw are the difference in your experience um, at the ballpark and kind of watching on TV, I think is like mm-hmm. how I think this question kind of gets answered differently. Um, if you're watching highlights of a baseball game, watching a bunch of guys hit bloop singles over the shortstop or second baseman's head is not that exciting. Yeah. I'll be honest. Um, like, a whole lot of ground outs, also not that exciting from a highlight standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think the MLB is exceptionally bad at marketing its sport in a clip-driven, hey, look at this cool thing this dude just did sort of way, despite the fact that there are a lot of rogue content creators online. Um, I don't know we see eye-to-eye with Rob Freeman at Pitching Ninja, but mm-hmm. he does a great job of marketing the sport, basically, yeah. for baseball. Yeah. and. I think the three true outcome version of the sport is great because you get bombs, yeah. you get nasty K's and you get some guys on base to create leverage. I think, I think, um, I think walks are just fine. I don't think anyone talks about walks. It's really just like <laughs> strikeouts and home runs that we're bringing up. Right. Um, in the park though, I think that there is kind of fu- something fun about the tension of having someone on in first or second. And I would love to see if baseball is going to make changes, changes that would, um, I don't know. I would love a world where people stole more. I don't know how that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think steals are fun. Yeah. Um, but I also think that like a lot of these three true outcomes guys that are good at hitting, get themselves in second. <laughs> like, yeah. And not all of them are slow. Like Joey Gallo steals bases. Um, you're going to see a few bases stolen from by Kevin Biggio next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily it's a choice. I think it's often a choice by ownership or people who generally have control over, the marketing or the mouthpiece guys think like Theo Epstein who just mm-hmm. got hired on basically to work for the MLB and kind of talked about how they basically need to get more people in pace as one of yeah. the things he was talking about. And I think that there's like a certain amount of baseball owners are trying to treat the problem that they want to be the actual problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're um, if you're the Dolan family in Cleveland, you want to believe that the problem with the sport is that too many people are striking out and all of them home runs rather than bad marketing and bad mismanagement. Right. So they're treating the problem they want to be the real problem. Um, I mean, there is so mu- so much wrong with like the way that they tell us to be excited about it, not what the actual sport is. I love watching dudes hit the ball a million miles. I don't care if I see them strike out because I like watching strikeouts too. It's, <laughs> I think it's more fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you make a lot of good points here. I think from a highlight reel standpoint, uh, yeah, nasty pitches, nasty strikeouts, uh, big bombs, uh, huge home runs. They are exciting. Bat flips, uh, struts, those things uh, are, are definitely uh, energizing. But I, I do think, and for me, it does transcend just being in the ballpark, although I think that is a good uh, way of, of separating these things out. When you're there, it really is very different. But even uh, in terms of rooting for your team, 
maybe not from a fantasy point of view, or I'm flipping around and watching games that I, I'm interested in baseball, but this isn't my heart's not in this one. When I'm watching my team play and they're stringing together, you know, there's a double, there's a single, and it's it's kind of just we have a big inning going. There's excitement, there's energy, there's the tension you were talking about. That's really exciting. And one of the things that I kind of always thought about baseball before we even moved into this three outcome. Um, and really what you're talking about, again, the, the two outcomes that we, we care about, um, it was that a home run was awesome, but it was almost a, a little bit like deflating, uh, where the home run comes, <laughs> it's huge, it's awesome, right? And then the next tie comes up and it's like, oh, okay, we're kind of starting over again. Empty, it's, a right? little, yeah. it's a little bit of a reset button at the same time. So you have that huge excitement. And then a little bit almost, I don't want to say a letdown, but I'm going to use that term, a little bit of a letdown, because it is a little bit of that reset button. Whereas, you know, the single, the stolen base, the bunt, the the sacrifice, it, it keeps the energy going. Uh, I do think in the ballpark you feel it more than on TV, but I also do think that when you're talking about people who are really behind a, a team, a fan base, the, the diehard fan, not necessarily the fantasy player, I do think that there is a little bit missing when we don't have that little bit of small ball element that seems to have kind of faded a bit. I think that there are people who can make good hearted, like we need to find more ways to adjust things so that contact is rewarded more. And there are changes mm-hmm. that you can make to the sport that are really simple. I think Mike Petriello had a good tweet. It's like, you know, lower the ball, lower the mound, mm-hmm. deaden the ball, uh, you know, it, things like that that would make it easier for the contact variety of the sport to be the one that matters. But I think you can draw a really quick line between the people who are wrong and loud and people who yeah. like actually want to fix things. Right. Um, yep. But you know, and I, I think that you're kind of right though. Like that if I'm at, at the ballpark, like there is something nice about it. Um, but you want to know what else is going to be really nice. It's just like make your team good, get people to show up to games that creates right. good atmosphere too. That's, and, that's, that's a fair point yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just not, it's not my priority. I think that's going to be where I sit at the end of the day. I can't bring myself to care that much about this, um, I don't know, weird nonsense about three true outcome stuff when it's just clearly to me not the actual issue. So maybe we can maintain the people who are good at that, right? And and carve out some yeah. space for people who can be exciting in new and different ways. Um, you know, I, I think again, most just, teams do it. <laughs> I think most teams really do that anyway. Like Joey Gallo's not surrounded by other Joey Gallo's in the Rangers lineup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be pretty tough. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's maybe one of those things among many that, uh, again, from a marketing perspective, from a uh, an on field product point of view, that uh, hopefully Major League Baseball will look at a little bit. And I am personally excited about Theo joining that group because I think he is very honest about, hey, I did these things because it was what I was supposed to do in my job, but I'm not sure if I was contributing to a bigger problem. I like that honesty. I like that level of transparency. And I think that's a really good thing to be bringing to the commissioner's office. Yeah, I feel like he's in the role that he could be recommending changes that could lead to that different aesthetic of baseball rather than complaining about the player development side creating players it's not the player's fault that they're doing the thing that gets them paid money of course like (laughs) or the the managers are managing to win no absolutely yeah exactly exactly it's all about incentives right and where do we incentivize things and and uh, if the dad is telling us a story then that's what my job is i'm going to follow that i i totally understand that piece of it too 
yeah, I, I hope Theo ends up yelling at someone to just get the marketing team to do their job a little bit better, too. <laughs> get the owners to do their job and spend some money. All right, well, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Alex, can you tell the people where they can find us? Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. (laughs) We'll catch you all next week. No homework this week. And that's it for me. All right. Thank you all for joining us once again, and we'll get you next time.